We are in the midst of a sermon series we're calling Law and Grace. And the intent of this series is to help us read our Bibles. Which means, throughout the Bible, no matter where we are, we are seeing, ultimately seeing Jesus and grace and being called to a greater trust in Jesus. And so, the way that we've set this up a little bit, we've talked about, so this is a contrast, right? Law and grace are a contrast. So, we've talked about law in, from the standpoint of Deuteronomy 28. If you obey God's laws, you will be blessed. If you disobey God's laws, you will be cursed. Now, the Bible tells a story of people who fail at obeying God incessantly. We can't stop failing to obey God. So consequently then, humanity is cursed at birth and throughout our lives here on earth. And the effects of the curse are abounding. I think all of us can look out on this world and we can say, this world is massively broken. We'll feel it in our own lives as well, but we can look out at culture and say, this world is really broken. Yet, the tendency in ourselves is to think, we still have to obey the law better. What are the rules God gave to me? He saved me. I believe in him. Okay, what do I have to do? And we fail at it over and over. And we keep going back. What do I have to do? What do I have to do better? So we try and we fail on repeat. To be clear, that is not good news. That's not, the law is not good news. The good news as depicted in the Bible is grace. God was aware that we could not keep the law. He has allowed us to continually fail in this endeavor as a way to show us we need help. We need help beyond ourselves. But God also then provided the help, and his name is Jesus. Jesus came, and he obeyed that law that we cannot obey. He fulfilled the law. And when Jesus fulfilled the law, he also made it obsolete. What this means is the Christian life is not about obeying God's law. The Christian life is not about obeying all the rules that God gives to us. It's about trusting in the one who kept the laws. And that's Jesus. So the law, as a means for salvation, has been made obsolete. We don't save ourselves by keeping God's law. The law, then, is intended as a tool to drive us to grace. It shows us we are insufficient as we continually break God's law. And that's really the point of the story that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, Especially for those of you who are Center Church, I just want to give you a strong encouragement. If you were not here the first week of this series... I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that first sermon just because it helps to lay some groundwork for what we're trying to do in this sermon series. Okay, Luke 18 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible or device, go ahead. You can turn there. Uh, You can read it, swipe along if you want to do. Otherwise, this will be on the screen behind me as well. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story. I pray that it would would reveal some things in our own hearts. I pray that you would teach us about who you are, about what Jesus does for us, I ask that you would help us see the beauty of grace in these moments together this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, what I want to do is I want to deal with just a few details around this story, and then we're going to flesh out some of the law grace implications that we can see in it. Okay, so first of all, this is a parable. So this is not a specific story. It's not a recounting of actual events, but Jesus likely had seen aspects of this story previously in different circumstances that he'd encountered. So he's telling this story to teach. He has a specific intent, a specific lesson that he's trying to communicate through the telling of this story. And we're going to come back to what that intent is in just a little bit, but we're first going to hone in on these two individuals, a Pharisee and a tax collector. So let me talk a little bit about these two individuals. Pharisees, first of all, were a religious sect within the Jewish faith that were known for their rigorous keeping of God's law. In the introduction for this series, we talked about God's law containing 613 laws. The Pharisees were part of identifying all of these 613 laws. They knew all of them, and they sought to keep them meticulously. But furthermore, they didn't just look at those 613. They sought to add on to those laws as well. So Jewish people were expected to fast, which means they were expected to not consume food for a period of time as a part of worship. They were expected to do this one time of year. It was called the Day of Atonement. And other fasts were observed periodically. But this individual noted how he fasted two times a week. He's going above and beyond what he needs to do. Jews were also expected to tithe, which essentially means to make payment to God off of their crops. However, this impressive individual tithed off of everything that he received, not just his crops, but everything that he possessed in his household. He's going above and beyond, and he does a really good job of letting us know about it as well, right? So this is the Pharisee. Then we also have the tax collector. Tax collectors in this time were considered to be traitors. They were viewed as sellouts because they were Jewish individuals, but they were working for the Romans. So they were in charge of collecting taxes from their people to then pass along to the Roman government. But the part that really caused Jewish people to hate them is that they were infamous for collecting more than was required by the Roman authorities. So they were instructed to get a certain amount from their people, but then they thought they'd get a little extra 
for themselves that they could keep on their own. So they did this to profit for themselves off of their own people. So they were considered dirty and were hated to a degree that caused them to be viewed as enemies of their own people. Now, in these two individuals, we get a really stark contrast. One of them would be revered. One of them would be a hero. That would be the Pharisee. He does many impressive things. The tax collector, on the other hand, is hated. He's an enemy of the Jewish people. Now, what we notice in Jesus' parable is that even though there are these similarities or these distinct realities about them, there's also many similarities about these two individuals in the short story that we read. They are both coming to the same temple to worship. They are both offering up prayers. They're both offering up prayers to the same God as well. Both of these men are Israelites. So there are plenty of similarities here as well. But despite these similarities, we find they are approaching God in vastly different ways. In the way they approach God, they provide us really helpful pictures of law and grace. So I want to flesh this out a little bit. So the Pharisee is approaching God through law. The whole premise of his existence is based upon law. Pharisees prided themselves on law-keeping. And pride is a great word here because their moral efforts made them proud. As this individual prays at the temple, it's interesting that he thanks God. He gives an appearance of gratitude to God, but soon that gratitude disappears. Notice his emphasis in his short prayer. Guys, I don't know if this, okay, it's, maybe it is clicking here. It, it, it wasn't clicking, so if you guys could just keep an eye on that. Um, okay, so five times this guy utters the pronoun I. So after giving the obligatory acknowledgement to God, he then moves on to what's really important to him, himself. That's what's important to him. He emphasizes what he is and what he isn't, and, and all the things that he has done and the things that he has not done as well. And this is where law keeping always leads us to a superiority complex, to feeling better than. We will relentlessly notice how we are better than whomever is not keeping the law to the degree that we are. So the fact that Jesus mentions the examples of tithing and fasting emphasize his focus on the law. Okay, so these were aspects of the law for sure. And so when we look at this Pharisee, we should be seeing a picture of law. Old Testament law. But notice here how the Pharisee sets up this comparison as he talks about himself. He mentions extortioners. This is something, or this is someone who forcibly takes money from another. So, now the Pharisee isn't not just committing extortion. He's tithing off of all that he has to give to God. So do you see what he's doing here? 
He's setting up the conversation to his advantage. He's comparing himself to others in a way that will reflect favorably upon himself. This is much the same as he compares himself to this tax collector. Clearly, anyone will look at him compared to the tax collector and conclude that the Pharisee has the moral high ground. He is impressive, at least in the way that he's set up the conversation. Also, as someone who is willing to withhold the goodness of food from himself on a regular basis, this demonstrates how he is superior to the individual who seeks to indulge himself in a variety of ways. Probably what he has in mind here is the individual who indulges himself in sexual sin, an adulterer. So he's, he's comparing in a way that really favors him, right? Law keepers seek to emphasize their strength, how they are better than. But the reality is there's a whole lot being said in the white space, in those parts where something's not being said here as well. What about all the sins that aren't being spoken about? Because there's a long list of them. What about pride? Why is he not mentioning pride? Why is he not talking about anger or envy? The reason those are not being referenced is because there's no advantage for him. He's not going to talk about pride because that's a serious issue. And, and maybe some of this is even unconscious. A lot of times when we are sinning, we, we don't even see the sin. We're, we're blind to our weaknesses or to our sin. But see, this is what someone who seeks to follow the law does. They try to build a resume that emphasizes their strengths. And we all do this. We all do this with God. We all have parts of our spiritual life that we view as strengths, as aspects that we will want to emphasize when we stand before God. So the resume is built in such a way to gain an advantage over other prospects. And we all do this in a variety of ways. But what this story is emphasizing emphasizing is that those things we oftentimes think are the most impressive about us actually are things that stand between us and God. They don't cause us to be near to God. So the Pharisee thought all of his religious discipline caused God to look upon him favorably. But that wasn't the case at all. It says that he didn't go to his house justified. So justified is a fancy theological word that basically means approved by God or made right by God. The Pharisee went home not justified, not approved by God. And this story demonstrates the biblical idea that we read about in other places of the Bible. That it's not merely our bad works that keep us from God. It's also our good works that keep us from God. Maybe this is something that's new for some of you. But the Bible talks about this. It's not just our, our bad things that separate us from God. It's also our good things 
under the heading of sin is included our pride-filled, self-righteous attempts to impress God and earn his favor by doing good things. What's clear in this story is that the one who went home justified, approved by God, is the one who came to God with nothing. It was the one who came to God with his head bowed. The one who came to God guilty, who felt ashamed, who simply sought mercy. And so, what we see really clearly in this story is that God's approval does not come from something inside of ourselves. God's approval comes from outside of us. We can't create anything. We, we can't be good enough, be better than, so that God will look at us and think, I'm going to draft that one. It's not because of our good things that we do. It's because of his grace. It's because of his kindness. And, and so th- this should really cause us, like, like this really presses us, I think, because there's this tendency in us to look outside of ourselves and to compare ourselves to others, right? I was talking in our gospel primer this morning about how we should never look out at other people and say they're a worse sinner than we are, because we don't know their heart, but we do know our own. As Christians, we don't look out on the world and just cast judgment on everybody else. We've got enough stuff to deal with in our own hearts, I don't preach this sermon to non-Christians not here. I am preaching to us. This is what we need to hear. Christians need to hear. If you're not a Christian here this morning, it's good for you to understand. This is what Jesus calls us to. We're not casting stones at other people outside of these four walls. We've got enough to deal with in our own house. Okay, so... We look at the Pharisee, the way that he's living his life. There's not good news there. And so here's where we need to get to good news. It's not those who have an impressive resume that God approves. If you have a terrible resume, and we do, then we've got to understand that we have a terrible resume in order to be approved by God. That is how we are approved by God. To understand that our resume is insufficient. It falls short. There's no amount of good work someone could do. And some of us maybe will think of certain cultural icons or religious leaders and say, yeah, but what about this person? So maybe someone you might think of is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa couldn't do enough to overcome her sin-stained resume. This is what she said. When you don't have anything, then you have everything. Sounds a lot like what we were talking about this morning. And she also says, at the end of our lives, we will not be judged by how many diplomas we have received, how much money we have made, or how many great things we have done. And this is a great word for all of us, but when she's talking about how much money we have made, we think of people in our own culture as well, right? Like Elon Musk, right? Or other people who are just rolling in money. 
This individual is not able to make enough money to overcome his resume of spiritual failure. And he has a ridiculous amount of money. Incomprehensible to us. No amount of success in the competition to subdue outer space, nor any number of championships in sports, or in chess, or in competitive hot dog eating, not, none of it is going to be enough. Our resume in front of God is not even a blank sheet of paper. Oh, that would be a good thing if our resume was a blank sheet of paper. But it's not. Our resume is filled with hatred and envy and selfishness and laziness and greed and fear and sexual sin. Our resumes are a blood-spattered resume. It's ugly. And I'm just talking about myself here, okay? But I know you're just as human as I am. So here's the good news, or maybe more good news. If you have a terrible resume, and you do, hope, love, grace are offered. Our terrible resumes, if we can get to that point to confess it, to admit it, is all we need when we stand before Jesus. But there's this reality. If you're someone who likes fairness, if you're someone who has tried to keep laws, because many churches, they want to lay a bunch of laws in front of you and say this is how you're, you can be a good Christian, this is the point where the lawkeeper becomes irate. Because the reality is, we think, man, I spent my life trying to follow these laws. I spent my life trying to obey you, God, giving myself for you. What about all those things that I did? And, and the caution, especially for church-going people, is that we tend to be more Pharisee. If you grew up in the church, or maybe if you've been in the church for a while, we tend to be more Pharisee. And so we should feel a rub here. This is where... Self-salvation proves itself as insufficient. Our attempts to save ourselves, to merit ourselves in front of God, are insufficient. And I want to go to the Bible, two different spots, to try and illustrate this. So two stories. First of all, if you grew up in the church, you maybe know this story as the prodigal son. I think it's better termed as two lost sons. So this is a story about two brothers. The younger brother disrespects his father and his family by asking for his inheritance before his father dies. And so he gets it, the father gives it to him, and then he goes off. And he squanders all that he has on wild living. He lives it up, and life was great until it wasn't. He ran out of money and he eventually came back to his father ashamed, groveling, hoping to merely be a servant to his father, thinking that his father is going to hate him for what he has done. But his father, who's a picture of God, 
rejoices that his son is home. Now there's another son here, a brother. It's the older brother. This older brother has been dutiful. He's worked tirelessly for his dad. He was the model son, except he wasn't. When his brother came back, all of the hatred that was full in his, that, that filled his heart just began to boil over in him. He was incensed that his father would throw a party for the return of his wayward son. He, he knows this brother of his took his inheritance. He squandered his money. And he stayed. He did the respectful thing. He stayed by his father. He worked as was expected, but it became clear he was doing what he was doing, not because he loved his father, but for his own self-interest. He expected to be paid, just like his younger brother. So you see the the older brother, what he had done in his own mind is he had constructed a law. And that law was, Dad, I'm going to work hard for you, and you're going to pay me what I'm owed, what I deserve. So according to this law, the father owed him. It was a transaction. He had done what he was supposed to do. He worked hard. He stayed by his dad's side. He didn't embarrass him. He was loyal. He did the grunt work. He put in his time. But all of this was simply not out of love, but to upstage his brother, to show that he was the better son, to set himself out as the respectable, honorable son. In his mind, his brother was no longer. His brother was as good as dead. He was disowned. He wasn't part of the family. And so when his brother was welcomed back, when his brother was shown grace, when his father broke the law, the transaction he had constructed in his own mind, he lost it on his father. He hated his father. And he called back all of the good he had done, how he was superior, how he was owed, And in this moment, we see this picture of how law-keeping is not enough. It's not enough to change a heart. The extension of grace was repulsive to this brother. And this idea was known by an Old Testament prophet, and this is the second example I want to go to. It's an Old Testament prophet named Jonah. In Jonah's time, Israel had a hated enemy. That enemy was Assyria. Assyria was a brutal, ruthless enemy. The capital of Assyria was Nineveh. Now God, he called his prophet Jonah to go to his enemy, to go to Nineveh and to call out their evil. Essentially, What he told Jonah to do was go to Nineveh and warn those people that my wrath is going to be poured out on them unless they turn from their wickedness. Now Jonah hated these people with a passion. 
We, when you read the story, you can see just seething racism in him. And we see this so much so that he would rather disobey God than go to his hated enemies. So what did he do? He went the opposite direction of Nineveh. Just, just kind of sticking it to God, right? Like this is how he's flipping God the bird. God says go this way. Jonah goes this way. Eventually, through some really crazy circumstances, Jonah does go to Nineveh, and he delivers probably the shortest sermon ever preached, an eight-word sermon, an eight-word message. Shockingly, Nineveh, this brutal nation, softens. They listen to that message, and they turn from their sin. And God relents from his anger, and he does not destroy Nineveh. And some of us, as we read this, we're like, that's great! They turn to God! It's not what Jonah thought. Jonah was devastated. Listen to what Jonah said. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, which is where he tried to go instead of going to Nineveh. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew who God was, that he was gracious, he knew what was possible. He wanted the law. He wanted God to follow through on the fact that they had broken his law, that they were the enemy of God's people. And he wanted them, or he wanted God to pour out his wrath upon Nineveh. Jonah was so distraught that right after this verse, he talks to God and he asked God to kill him. That is how strongly he felt about this. What I want you to hear in all of this is that when the law is used to justify oneself, it turns people into ugly humans. The Pharisee, people looked at him and thought, man, he's got his stuff together. He's cleaned up. He does all the right religious things. I want to be like him. But what the Bible teaches us is when we try to clean ourselves up, when we try to obey God's law, we become really ugly, self-righteous, prideful. And Jesus knows this. This is exactly why he was telling this parable going back to the beginning of the first verse that we had read. This is what Jesus says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. People who emphasize law will do so in a way that makes them look superior. But the danger in this construct is ultimately those people are essentially trusting in themselves. They're trusting in their ability to obey the law. They're not trusting in Jesus and the fact that he came and fulfilled the law. And ultimately, when we base our goodness on what we do, 
it's going to cause us to treat other people with contempt. And this is why we are so relentless in calling us to believe in Jesus. Every week, that's what we leave here with. Believe in Jesus. And we call for this over and against the idea of doing better. It's not about doing better. It's not about appeasing God. Doing better, following a law, actually leads us away from Jesus. It mitigates our need for him. The intention of the law is to show us as needing mercy, to help us see that the lawkeeper and the lawbreaker end up in the same spot, in need of grace. And so this story is to help us understand according to what each of us knows personally, or at least God's intention for us to know personally is that, as we read at the beginning of the service, that we are the chief of sinner of sinners. We need to embrace that reality. I don't stand up here thinking I am superior to you in any way. I need Jesus just as much as every single one of you. We end our sermons with what we call gospel application. We're not sending you out of here with things to do. We're sending you out of here reminding you this is who Jesus is This is what Jesus has done for you. So two points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, grace looks more beautiful as we look less so. As we look less beautiful. John the Baptist said it this way, He, being Jesus, must increase. I must decrease. We have a tendency to shy away from viewing ourselves as messy or as the chief of sinners. Because culturally, that's not appropriate, right? What do we do over and over? Go to the gym, buy certain clothes, whatever it might be, we're trying to fit into a box where people will approve us, think a little better of us. We don't want to view ourselves as messy. In many ways, it's unpleasant. Many of us might even think like, man, if that's what I'm supposed to do, just think I'm messy, think I'm messed up, like that, that just leads to depression and darkness and really hard realities. But that's not the gospel. God doesn't show us our ugliness to make us miserable. He shows us ugliness so we can begin to see true beauty, to pull us out of the messiness towards Jesus. So the gospel is about moving people from dead to death to life, okay? The gospel is not about moving people from bad to good or from good to better or from better to best. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about taking dead people, spiritually dead people, and raising them to life. When we see we have nothing and we're confronted with a God who has everything and then offers that to us, says that's freely yours, that's salvation, that's grace, that is beauty. As much as we want someone to pat us on the back and say good job, at the end of the day, we all know we fall short. 
And what a gift that Jesus stands there saying or giving grace to us. Not saying, do this better, giving us a list of religious disciplines so that we can be approved. He just gives himself his life, lets his blood be shed, offers grace and forgiveness of sins to us. As much as our type A personality, I can do it, pull up my bootstraps, wants to be patted on the back, at the end of the day, this is really good news. Jesus offers us grace. It's the best news in the world. It's the best news in the world. Secondly, Jesus leads us into grace to keep us there. I was talking uh, about this idea with another pastor recently, and we were discussing the sermon series we're in right now, and he said, so your movement in this series is law to grace and back to law. And I said, no, 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 no. The movement is law to grace. And it ends there. We don't go back to law after that. And then we, he and I had a really robust conversation about this. But, but if the movement is law to grace to law, and, and we applied it to this parable, the tax collector is invited then from grace into the ugliness of what the Pharisee was struggling with. The struggle for the tax collector and for us is to not go back into that lifestyle. He already sought approval in the form of gaining more money and probably elsewhere, probably adultery. So the church tends to take new Christians and tell them, okay, now here's all the things you need to do to be a good Christian. And I'm saying, no! Let's not do that. Don't move on from grace. Rest in grace. Bask in grace. Keep staring at it. See the beauty. See its beauty in new ways. There are so many things I don't see about grace. Even in my own life, we have no idea how kind God is to us. It's like we're drinking from a a fire hose of grace. So many things. The clothes that I'm wearing. The bed that I sleep in. My wife. A body that allows me to be up and about. Children, a church. So many gifts of grace that are poured out on us, given to us. And often we're just blind to them. Listen to me. You don't need to form yourself into anything. God gives his Holy Spirit to those who believe in Jesus. He will form love in you. He will form joy in you. He will form peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. He will form these things in us. It's not up to you to follow all kinds of spiritual disciplines and make yourself into something. We don't need a law to legislate the Spirit of God in us. That will only turn us into the very thing we despise in this story. We don't need to exalt ourselves through self-righteous living. We humble ourselves, and Jesus takes care of the rest. And that's good news.